It is one of those weeks that I could stand up here and say, Oi, what a week. Or I could say, Oi, what a summer. But the problem with either one of those statements is that you wouldn't know specifically what I was talking about. Because there's so much going on. This week I want to talk about Ferguson, Missouri. And what I've found troubling. What I want to look at is the reaction to Ferguson. The amazing thing about the day and age that we live in, of social media, is that now we have a time you can go on and see the world's reaction to everything. Where you're going to see what people tell you what they're for, what they're against, what they're skeptical, what they're not skeptical of. And I saw something on Facebook this week that shocked me. There were people criticizing the narrative of the African-American community on this subject. I read people's posts who just didn't get it. And so I wanted to use the time tonight to unpack this. To how do we actually look at Ferguson and understand it with a Jewish lens? And why it's our responsibility to view and to act with a Jewish lens on topics as important as this. Let me begin by explaining what's going on for me and why I was taken aback. We, and by we I mean Jews, are a people who have embraced the narrative that we were slaves in Egypt. Our founding myth as a people is about being slaves and relating to the world and the others with eyes of people who have been powerless and voiceless. This is our frame of the world. The number one mitzvah in the entire Torah, a mitzvah so important it's repeated 36 times, no other mitzvah is repeated this number of times, is that we were slaves in Egypt, and because we were slaves in Egypt, we should never treat anyone the way we were treated. This frame of ours it does not come out of thin air. It is deeply rooted and it's built inside of our customs and our traditions for us to identify with the downtrodden. Once a year for an entire week, we act like we're slaves. We eat the food of slaves. That's what Passover is. We don't talk about Moses the entire week because he's not part of the story. We are the story that week. When my oldest daughter, Ayla, when she was three years old. At about day five, she was sick of matzah. And she goes, oh, but why do we have to eat this matzah? And I start explaining to her, I go, look, we were slaves in Egypt. And she gives me this puzzled look. She goes, Abba, I, I, was, I was never in Egypt. I go, well, no, I, I know you weren't in Egypt, but you know, our family, we, we were in Egypt. She goes, Zadie was in Egypt? I go, no, not Zadie, our, our ancestors. A year went by, and for her, she suddenly acted 10 years older, and I heard her explain to her younger brother about Passover. And she said to him, Asa, we were slaves in Egypt. It worked. Suddenly that narrative, in one year, it suddenly became her narrative. It was her frame on how she suddenly viewed the world. Because the frame is everything. It defines how each of us perceive the world. According to the New York Times and the CBS News poll that came out this week, 
almost 50% of white people view the police as friends, while only 23% of blacks view them as friends. It's a huge disparity. To view someone in that kind of power, who is on your side, who is there for you, that is a stark, stark difference. The O.J. Simpson trial, which was now 20 years ago, at the 10-year anniversary of PBS, they made a documentary about the case where a black customer in a barbershop in LA, he summed up the case and he said, they framed a guilty man. The African-American community saw the case as the police framing O.J. Simpson, while the white community saw O.J. as guilty. They were both true. But why is it that there is such a divide in understanding on this issue? Why is it that the white community is seeing something so different than the black community? Why are the frames so different? Since frame is everything, I want to step away from Ferguson just for a moment. We'll come back to it. And step into a frame that Jews are very familiar with and use that as our bridge to understand what is happening today. Earlier this week, I had the honor of learning with Dr. Mark Dollinger, who's speaking on the subject of anti-Semitism. And this is a topic that gets our blood going. So it is a great place to start. One of the modern theories in understanding anti-Semitism is that anti-Semitism must be associated with power, and specifically in relation to state power. Now, I can see some of you already squirming and trying to punch holes in this definition. And we must understand that there is a very clear difference between prejudice and discrimination. Prejudice is feeling terrible about a person or about a group, while discrimination is the ability to act on it. Prejudice is thought, discrimination is action. There's a major difference between a homeless person on the street saying something anti-Semitic, which happened to one of the members of our community this week, versus the President of the United States saying the same thing. According to the New School of Sociological Thought, of the 1960s, the only person who can be anti-Semitic was a person who could act on their belief. According to this theory, marginalized groups are incapable of anti-Semitism. The homeless person on the street who yells that all Jews should be put back in the camp is very different than the President of the United saying all Jews should be put back in the camps. And I know what you're going to say counter with this with, what about the person who was in Europe at the Jewish Museum who shot the Jews? What about the person who shot the people at the JCC in the South? In every single one of these cases, the state arrested that person and incarcerated them. We cannot change individual thoughts. We can be upset that people do not like Jews, but it is wholly different when that same person is in a position of power. It is wholly different when the government does not protect you. It is one thing for Germans to hate Jews. It is something completely different when the German government and the police rounded us up and killed us. There was nowhere else to go. We felt powerless. We were powerless. 
In Ferguson, the African-American community views the power structure, the virtually all-white police department, not as an ally or as a friend, but as a threat. We know what that feels like. We've been there. So when we hear a minority group say, this is what the experience is for us, we should listen. Because very few groups have been raised in a tradition to have personalized a slave view of the world while not being a slave. There's a reason why the Torah, it hammers this point in our head 36 times that we were slaves in Egypt. But it works. It's designed in a way that Ayla, a year after that, was in the car with my older sister, leaving a soccer game, and she saw a homeless person. She told my sister she had to pull over because she wanted to give the homeless person her half-drunk Capri son. My sister goes, why? She goes, well, we were slaves in Egypt. We were homeless. So were they. Because at that point, the homeless person was no longer the other. It was her. We're told 36 times not to treat others as less because we are them. This is our job as Jews. It doesn't matter where we are socioeconomically. We are taught to put ourselves in the shoes of those who have the least power in society. And then to use our power, if we have it, to hear their story, not as an other, but as an equal. As someone who comes from a history of powerlessness. When we approach the world with this set of ears and hearts, our criticism, it becomes much softer. Because they are no longer them. They are us. Can you hear that song?